In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Quirks of Creation. I'm Jess Holmes, and joining me, as always, is Elise. Hey, Elise. Hello. Hi, guys. Happy Friday. Happy Quirks Day. Happy Quirks Day. Happy, like, two or three days before Christmas, which is outrageous. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying not to think about it. Right. Who's so excited? I am not. I'm yet. so excited and also so not ready. Exactly. Yes. Like, I love Christmas. It always sneaks up on me. Always. Yes. I feel like this year, especially with it being on a Monday, it feels extra sneaky. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, oh, well, it's going to be great. And it is what it is. So, hey. That's right. And so I hope you guys are filled with holiday cheer and science cheer because we are going to talk deep space cosmology today. I'm super excited. I'm down for it. I can't wait. I can't wait either. It's so good to see everybody in chat. We saw a bunch of you guys earlier during our Illuminati stream with Abby Libby from Conspiracy Pulled, which was super fun. It was super fun. I feel bad for the guys who can't be there, but yet I don't. So yeah, you know. no boys allowed. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It kind of like reignited my love for crafting. Oh, yes. It just gave me an excuse to do it. Like I have to. Now I That's have right. to. So, it was awesome yeah. just to hang out with Abby and Frida and just like all of our gal pals. And so now I'm excited to sit here and talk about science with you because we are going to be talking about the Big Bang, which I know is a dirty word in Christian circles. And I don't get why. Bang. It's and like God spoke and bang, it was me. there. Yeah. Weird. I know. It, <laughs> it's like they just took what happened and made it their own. Not fair. <laughs> Right. And this is the thing I always come back to when I think of the Big Bang Theory is that it feels very much like a Christian theory. Yes. Just like on the outset, if you know nothing about it, just that the universe began, it feels very Christian because it suggests that there was time <clears throat> before. Right. I don't know. But we'll get into all of that. So before we get into the meat of the Big Bang Theory, I, I want to set the stage of the theories that preceded the Big Bang Theory. So there, there were two competing theories, right? There was the belief in some sort of divine creator, whether you believed in the Christian God, the real God, or whatever sort of entity, there was this thought that somebody somewhere created all of this mess, or typically people believed, and this was the most common in scientific circles, that the universe was eternal and had always been. Uh, and when I think of this, I often think of the phrase turtles all the way down. Have you ever heard that phrase before? No. Oh. <laughs> <But> I, <laughs> that's, 
That's funny. I've never heard it. I like it. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so it's basically this argument of infinite regress. So there's an infinite series of entities governed by a recursive principle that determines how each entity in the series is produced by its predecessor. Basically, that's a lot of crazy language to say that I have a belief that is justified by a belief that is justified by another belief. So I have a turtle that's supporting the earth that's standing on a turtle supporting the earth and turtle (laughs) supporting the earth all the way down. And like not to trivialize the universe has always been there argument, but it feels like that when you said the universe has always been there because the universe has always been there, you know? Yes. That's a really great way to describe it. Yeah. But that... That takes faith as well. I can't believe that was ever a, a theory that was really right? prevalent. I've never really, I guess, before the Big Bang, I've never thought right. about what did they believe before? That. That's the thing is like Big Bang theory is so ingrained into our education system, into the way yes. we understand science and the way we understand the universe. It's hard to remember that there was ever a time in which people didn't believe in it. But actually, the Big Bang Theory is as recent as the 1900s. Yes, exactly. It's in the grand scheme of things. It is a relatively new theory. Very, very new theory. Yeah. So, and uh, this guy, Seeger of Brabant, uh, was a 19th century philosopher from the Netherlands who authored this thesis, The Eternity of the World. And he was the first guy to really proposed that the universe had always been there. Uh, He suggested that the physical universe had no beginning. And this is where steady state theory, which comes up a lot in these scientific arguments, this idea that the universe is truly constant and has undergone absolutely no change since the beginning of time. That was the prevailing scientific theory because of this 13th century philosopher. And people didn't have any evidence to the contrary. Right. Right. Nothing to refute that. So, (laughs) right. So like, what are you going to believe? If all you're doing is looking at the material world and looking at material facts, they had no basis to believe that the earth was anything more than always there. Yeah. That is until my guy, Edwin Hubble came on scene. Mm-hmm. You Hubble, heard of that guy? Hubble telescope? Hubble yeah. of Hubble telescope fame. Yeah. Yeah. So this episode is going to focus a lot on Edwin Hubble and his discoveries. But again, even before I talk about him, I want to set the scene of cosmology in his day. Because we know man has always looked at the stars ever, like basically since our inception. And it wasn't until Galileo who brought us the first telescope that we could actually look at them and say, oh, not just twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Oh, you're a giant burning ball of hot gas. Yeah. <laughs> just like they said in The Lion King. Anyway. <laughs> I love no. that. Oh, <laughs> There's my intelligent... Uh, you know, there. I You're love welcome. that because that takes me back to my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> what if? Anyway, yes. Right. And so 
even in Galileo's time, they could look up at the stars and kind of have a better understanding of what the psalmist meant when he said the heavens were made by the word of the Lord. All of the stars breathed out of his mouth. Like, yeah, that's kind of huge. Look at that. Yeah. What a big deal. (laughs) Kind of. Just just a little bitty big deal. Just a bit. To give you an idea of what Galileo was looking at, here's kind of a map he made of the Milky Way. And he was able to see it as this sort of cloudy-like haze back in 1610 with his telescope, you know, very rudimentary compared to the telescopes we have now, of course. Um, But what Galileo found is that the sky is filled with so many more stars than we first realized, which is insane. Yeah. Just like crazy insane. And he basically developed the belief that what came to be known as the Milky Way galaxy was the extent of our universe. And so don't get me wrong. Milky Way's huge. And that's about as far as he could see with his telescope. That's pretty far still. I was going to say that's impressive in and of itself that he could see that much. Right. With that telescope. And yeah, that's huge in and of itself just the Milky Way galaxy. Yeah. And so super impressive. And then about a hundred years later, we get uh, (laughs) English astronomer Thomas Wright. And he really helped emphasize Galileo's claim with his hypothesis of the universe in which he speculated that the Milky Way was made of a flat layer of stars. So you guys have seen that picture where it looks like the Milky Way is just this big two-dimensional spiral. We know it's actually in three dimensions, but when you look at it, in an image, it looks like it's on a two-dimensional plane. And so he was able to see all of the faint cloud, like nebula around him. And just to kind of quote him, he said, in all likelihood, be external, these nebulae were external creations bordering upon the known one too remote for even our telescopes to reach. Basically, this idea that the faint nebulae were their own creations. So he was the first one to even suggest that perhaps we weren't just the only thing in the universe, that it wasn't just the Milky Way galaxy. Mm-hmm. And just to give you an idea of what he was looking at, this is what, a ne- what I'm talking about when I say a nebula. I mean, gorgeous, right? It's so beautiful. And it's so otherworldly. Like, there's nothing like that. Maybe there is, but nothing I can think of off the top of my head here that you can see quite like that. And it's, I don't even know how to describe it for anybody who's listening. I know. Guys, this is one of those ones where you really need to come over to Rumble, hit the subscribe button and hang out with us because I got so many pretty star pictures for you guys to look at. And what we're looking at is this fuzzy cloud nebula. I mean, absolutely gorgeous. This is a more modern picture, of course. Sure. With the older telescope, it'd be like a fuzzy haze. But even still, he was looking at this and going like, I wonder if it's not just the Milky Way. I wonder if perhaps the universe is bigger than we think. There's more. (laughs) Right. And so Immanuel Kant basically followed right and proposed this idea of island universes that existed outside the Milky Way galaxy, that perhaps the Milky Way galaxy was its own universe and Mm. these distant nebulae were also their own universes. I mean, just because they're so pretty. I'm going to show you another one. I mean, just look at that. Uh, The 
the pink and the red and the orange with the stars. And I don't know. It just absolutely gorgeous. Right. That's not like an AI image. No. You know, that's what it. That's what it looks like. This is straight from the Hubble Space Telescope. Right. So. It's so pretty. I, I, make I, that I don't very know clear that that's real. Right. <laughs> that it's real. <laughs> it is. It's just gorgeous. And it, for us, I don't want to jump ahead or anything like that. Yeah. But for us, like, you look at that and you think, oh my word, the God of the universe, like, he took so much time and effort into what we see here on Earth. But then you also broaden your horizons and look at these pictures and you're like, wow, like every detail just reminds you of how glory, glory, like his glory, like just amazing. Anyway. It's just so big and so massive and just wait because it gets bigger, right? (laughs) Because you're on quirks, we always get bigger. I have to take it one more step. Right. Okay. So in 1917, we get Herbert Curtis, who observed the Nova S Andromeda, which is basically this Nova that is in the Great Andromeda Nebula. It was known as a nebula before it was known as a galaxy. And this was also known as Messier Object 31. That's just like classification for you extra space nerds out there. Oh, you Um, were extra. Yeah. So by investigating the photographic records of the time, Curtis found that the Andromeda Nebula contained way more novae than the Milky Way galaxy. And this is just like an incredible find because this supported the island universe hypothesis. And that's kind of a big deal in 1917 when all they believed was out there was the Milky Way galaxy. And when he said, like, this might be silly, but when he said islands, did he mean there was, like, nothing in between? Right. That is part of the theory that kind of starts to break down is that there's this galaxy over here. There's this galaxy. And they're all floating through what exactly? Right. Right. And and that's part of why people were like, well, I don't know about that. That doesn't really make sense. Which, fair, it doesn't. But. There was also a question of how could it make sense that the Milky Way is all there is. And just to kind of give you guys like a feel for what a nova is, what I mean when I'm talking about a nova, I know it, we tend to associate nova with supernova, like a star exploding and then dying. I'm talking about just a regular old nova, and that's just the brightening of a star. So let's say I have two stars in a binary system like you guys see right here. They're hanging out together, orbiting one another. And let's say one of those stars runs out of fuel in its core and expands to be a red giant. This is basically the dying process of a star. When it becomes very large at high luminosity and low surface temperature, they're called red giants. And so uh, this is the late stage of evolution. There's no more hydrogen remaining in the core to fuel the nuclear fusion that gives us the bright, shiny, twinkling star that we know our sun to be. Mm -hmm. And then let's say several million years later, maybe even a billion years later, it cools and contracts into a white dwarf. And now let's say the other star in this binary system, they're still orbiting each other, also expands and starts to die to be a red giant. Now I have a white dwarf orbiting 
a red giant. So they're basically moving around together. You have to remember a red giant is putting off all of this matter, all of this energy. It's basically trying to get rid of anything it has left so it can contract back down into a white dwarf. And all of that matter and excess energy is piling up on the neighboring white dwarf, making it hotter and hotter and hotter until it gets to be about 20 million degrees Kelvin, at which point nuclear fusion starts to take place again and it shines. Oh, that's really cool. Right. That's really cool. They like feed off of each other. They do feed. So here's an artistic rendition of what that looks like. We, we can't actually capture the moment because there's too much going on and it's too bright. But this is an artistic rendition of what that might look like if we could capture it. And so if you're looking through a telescope and looking up at the sky, you can see this periodic glimmering and brightening of stars as a novae. Sometimes this can happen with binary stars every couple of years. Sometimes their periods are even longer because we've only seen them do it once. Right. So it it all depends on the binary system. And so this is what Curtis was seeing out there very far away. These brightening stars farther away than what they understood the Milky Way to be. Right. Right. Outside of our realm. Right. If you will. Yes. And so that's a big fine. Very big fine. That's a a big fine. Uh, Real quick. Hicktown Honey asked. So they're recycling energy to each other. Like it just kind of the white star does or the white dwarf doesn't pass energy back to the red dwarf. It's just or, or the red oh. giant, excuse me. I, I'm getting all my terms messed up tonight. The red giant is only passing material to the white dwarf, and the white dwarf is using it as it gets hotter and hotter. Right. And we have to remember we're talking on the cosmic scale, so all of this is happening. Yeah. Thousands, millions of years. It's not like it's happening every couple of seconds. Every month they pass yeah. it back and forth, right? Which I'm sure there could be a pair of binary stars somewhere out there in the galaxies <laughs> that right. do that. Maybe we haven't seen it yet. Who knows? There's so much to know. <laughs> so much we don't know. Oh, man. Don't even get me started. <laughs> All right. So this was Curtis's findings. And this <clears throat> really triggered Harlow Sharpley, who was another prominent astrophysicist of the time. Uh, Shapley argued in favor of the Milky Way as the entire universe. So he was on the train with everybody else thinking, we're all there is because we're mm-hmm. hot shots, right? Right. Um, this is it. This is it, guys. We're all there is. Uh, <laughs> he believed that the spiral nebula- nebulae, like Andromeda, were just a part of the Milky Way. And he had this big galaxy theory that he put out in 1918 and claimed, so he even He's basically putting down a bet, right? He said, if the Andromeda is not a part of the Milky Way galaxy, it has to be more than 300,000 light years away, which he at the time predicted to be the diameter of the Milky Way and from his perspective, the universe. Well, okay, if you're claiming this little hazy cloud-like thing is going to be a different galaxy, it's got to be farther away than what we know to be the edges of our current galaxy right known yes right of course Hmm. of course and so adrian van man another astronomer also supported shapley's argument he basically claimed that he had observed a pinwheel galaxy rotating and if it was 
in fact a distinct galaxy, you would see it rotating on a time scale in years, and its mm-hmm. orbiting velocity would be so enormous, and it would break all of the universal speed limits. He's like, this just can't happen, because you're breaking the laws of physics. <laughs> you're breaking the laws that we made up <laughs> based on what little we know. No, no. Okay. Yeah. So but this is basically what is what is known as the great debate because these sure. guys were legit going at it. And either you were a physicist who sided with Shapley and you were like, okay, all there is is the Milky Way galaxy, or you sided with Curtis and you're like, perhaps the universe is bigger than we think. And there was really no in between. Mm. So even mm-hmm. Then, even at this time, you can see them getting kind of political with the thing. Right. It, it starts. It begins. It begins. <laughs> and so this is the culture that our guy <laughs> Hubble was walking into when he joined the Carnegie Institution for Science near Pasadena, California, and started doing all of the cool things that he did. So excited to talk about. And just for context for our guy Hubble, he was working alongside uh, alongside bleh, George Ellery Hale. And if you guys don't know who Hale is, he basically discovered that sunspots are magnetic <laughs> and have a magnetic field 2,500 times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. Jeez. <laughs> right. It's like, okay, sun, just be extra. Yeah, you just calm down there. <laughs> I've heard that, but I forgot. It's so it's right. so it, impressive. It's like that's why sunspots kind of knock out our electronics. <laughs> right. right. Kind of like <laughs> those are a big deal. <laughs> right. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. So oh just just to give you a feel well, that's for That's who, who he was working with yeah. before before he went to it, at, Carnegie? At, or at, at, okay. at CSI. So okay. he was looking through. It was then Hale's telescope. That he was mm-hmm. using. So they were gotcha. using this brand new at the time telescope, looking at all these things. And one of Hubble's first big finds was a CFID variable. And when I first read that, I was like, he found X? He found variable? He found like X. What? He found X. No, a CFID variable is actually a star. So oh, let okay. me see if I can show you guys a picture of a CFID variable. This is a CFID variable. It, this is a star that pulsates radially, uh, varying in both diameter and temperature. So basically, it's changing its brightness with a well-defined stable period and amplitude. Kind of yeah. like a dimming switch, right? If I say it's a dimmer. Yes, it's a dimmer. <laughs> if I knew every 10 minutes you were going to turn up the brightness in the room, I would be able right. to figure out by counting backwards in time in 10 minute increments how long that had been going on right wow that's amazing that's so cool yeah and and again it's just gorgeous (laughs) it's just it's just beautiful okay so this what increments did it does it, I don't know if that may even matters like so you have to remember we're talking on the cosmic scale again yeah so yeah it's huge yeah, huge increments, yeah. Um, like, and we're also measuring light and the traveling of the light. Yeah. Friendly reminder: light travels at three hundred million meters per second. 
faster than you can drive. That's for sure. Pretty darn fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my word. Okay. And because that's in distance per time units, that means not only can we track its luminosity and its pulsation period, but that period gives us a distance. So it's really good for helping him calculate how far away these stars are. Nice. We can actually pinpoint much more accurately. Yes. And so he was able to map, not just like figure out the CFID variables, but he, because of them, he was able to map out the size and shape of the Milky Way galaxy Hmm. and figure out how far wide it was. Right. And how far the Andromeda Nebula was. 900,000. So many zeros. So many zeros. <laughs> Light years away. Light years. Again. Can't even. It's a little. It, there's a little difference there. <laughs> Just imagine. I'm the first guess to that. So that means, yes. context, the universe is way, way, way bigger than we could have ever imagined. Yeah. And so by 1929, not only had Hubble figured that out, he had measured the distance to 24 additional spiral nebula in his study. Wow. 24. Yep. Oh, my goodness. Now, of course, we know that the universe is even bigger than that. Right. Right. But, but I just want everybody to, like, take a second and just kind of bask in that and think of just how freaking huge our universe was found to be then with weaker technology, with less accurate measurements. And still, he brought the great debate crashing down around it. <laughs> yeah. Wow, he brought that to a halt very quickly. Oh my goodness. Wow. And for context, not to make you feel any smaller, there <laughs> are a hundred billion stars in our own galaxy. We are not in the middle of our own galaxy. We're not even the biggest planet in our own solar system. And then 100,000 light years, for context, one light year is about 6 trillion miles. We are just one blue marble in the enormity of this colossal space. And for the first time in history, this was all brought to bear. (laughs) We are itty bitty living space in a great big pond. He, not only did he shatter the illusion that we are like the center of the universe, but he shattered any illusion that we even were significant in the universe as far as size and space. And holy cow. Right. Holy cow. Yep. So there's that. And <laughs> of course, it gets even crazier. So as he was studying these X- 24 extra galactic nebula... Yeah by examining the relationship between their distances and their radial velocities, he noticed that they were doing something weird called a redshift. Have you ever heard of a redshift before? 
I have not. Okay. Let me pull up a picture because I think it, I like pictures because they help me think of things. Have you heard of Mm -hmm. the Doppler effect before? Yes. Okay. So we know in the Doppler effect, a car that is approaching you, the sound will get louder and louder. And a car that is driving away from you, the sound will get quieter and quieter. That's because the thing that is approaching has a shorter wavelength and higher frequency. And the thing that is leaving has a longer wavelength or a longer frequency. I can't speak. The opposite. The opposite. It's the opposite. Anyway, (laughs) words are hard. Yes. So basically, the redshift is an increase in wavelength, decrease in frequency. It's like I go from short, really fast, to long and slow. The same thing, because light also behaves as a wave, is seen in light. And this redshift was seen on the star level, which is weird. Yeah. Because that would suggest that the stars are moving away. Right. Movement. That don't jive with steady state theory. Kind of shoots that one in the foot, too. (laughs) How could the universe be as it has always been? If that star is moving away. (laughs) Nope. So if you hadn't picked up what I'm putting down, Hubble had found that the universe was expanding. Yeah. Oh, nice job, Hubble. He's really an overachiever. I must say. Yeah. He's, he's not only reminding us how insignificant we are, but he's also just an overachiever. So, (laughs) Right, right. Thanks, bro. And so (laughs) to really deal with the enormity of this, I want to mention our guy, our favorite physicist, Albert Einstein, for just a moment. Because several years earlier to Hubble, Einstein had actually already proposed his theory of relativity. And in his theory, he proposed that gravity, which we know is not an actual force, but the curvature of space-time caused by mass and energy. And this curvature affects the path of objects moving through it, including light, which is a huge deviation from our understanding of Newtonian physics, because we thought that because light has no mass, it can't be affected by gravity. Right. And so it's like, well, Einstein, what are you doing, man? How does that, how does that even work? Make it so make sense. Here's the, yeah, make it make sense. Here's this an image of this theory. When light passes near a massive object, the space-time around the object is curved due to the massive object's gravity, and this curvature causes the light to follow a curved path, a phenomenon we call gravitational lensing. Now, sir, yeah. Now, Sir Arthur Eddington set out to prove Einstein right in this theory. Because he's like, that's cool, man. Let's see if we can figure it out. And because Einstein had suggested that this phenomenon would be observable during solar eclipses, he set out to find a solar eclipse. Hmm. Smart. Right. Smart. And just to answer the question before it comes, because I I can feel it coming. It's like, why solar eclipse? Well, if you hadn't noticed, our sun creates a lot of light. It's kind of in the way if you want to see some stars. (laughs) Because that tends to interfere with your observations, especially if you're trying to see light bending. And so instead of 
trying to figure out how to dim the sun, why don't we just kind of hide the sun for a second and then we can do some math. Right. Make the math math. Yes. Make the math math. (laughs) And so he went around chasing some eclipses. Luckily for him on May 29th, 1919, it was predicted there would be a solar eclipse seven minutes longer than any eclipse since the 1400s. So he really lucked out. Yeah, he had time. (laughs) He had major time. And Einstein was totally right, of course. Ah, Of course he was, because he's Einstein. Because he's Einstein. And this is amazing, because this, I mean, he was able to figure out that the position was just, like, it's such a small difference, 1.75 degrees of change. But that's enough of a change to prove it. Right. And it's enough of a change to make equations come out differently. Right. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah. Right. So it's not insignificant. <laughs> Definitely not insignificant. Yeah. Oh, I know. It's crazy. And this wasn't the only thing that Einstein proposed in that same paper. Because of the anomalous effects of gravity and this gravitational lensing phenomenon, the mathematical data was revealing to him a very uncomfortable truth that he didn't like very much. If the universe, uh, he f- basically, because of this bending of light, it was showing him that the universe was probably expanding. And if it wasn't expanding, or it hadn't started expanding at the beginning, it was going to start collapsing in on itself. Mm-hmm. And he didn't like either one of those ideas for two reasons. First, because steady state theory was the common cause of the day. Everybody liked it, especially if you were anti-religious scientists, which he was at the time. Mm-hmm. And it suggested that the universe had a beginning, which stunk way too much of religion. How dare you? <laughs> right. Let's not do. Let's not go there. Let's not do that. Right. So, to circumvent this uncomfortable truth, Einstein created a placeholder number he called the cosmological constant so the equations would give a gravitational result of a static universe. I mean, my dude. Come on, bro. You know better. (laughs) I know better. (laughs) Right? And this... Just to get on my soapbox for just a minute about science, scientists and falsification of data. This has been common cause in science since the very beginning, because whenever you get somebody going out and trying to push a very specific message, trying to push a very specific idea, you always get falsification of data when it conflicts with everybody's common beliefs. It prevents good science from being done. Right. Exactly. And to be an altruistic scientist, that's not your goal. (laughs) Right. Your goal is to figure out objectively what the truth is by whichever way you can. And he basically put in a fudging number because he didn't like the answer. (laughs) This makes me comfortable. I'm going to insert this here <laughs> so I really, can continue though. to deal with it. Yeah, And that was before, I mean, science was already starting to get its feet wet in politics, but now just kind of extrapolate that for just a yeah. minute. Makes me uncomfy. Yeah, definitely. Ah, there's no evidence of that. 
happening today. Whoops. What? <laughs> so anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Alexander Friedman, uh, a Russian meteorologist and mathematician, kind of looked at Einstein's equations and was like, wait a minute. That don't sit right with me. And so he published his own set of mathematical models that showed a non-static universe because he's like, your math is good, but your physics ain't there, bro. Yep. <laughs> and because of that, that forced Einstein to note very grimly that this model was indeed a mathematical possibility. Whoops. Whoops. It got even worse when a Belgian Catholic priest, uh, Father Georges Le, I'm going to say it wrong, Lemaitre. Sure. Sure. I should know how to say his name because he's very important, but Lemaitre is, I don't know. I'm not good at Belgian, guys. <laughs> Belgian's hard. And he published the model for the expanding universe. And then, of course, we get our guy Hubble ever the meticulous observer seeing the redshift up front and close and personal. So you've got theoretical physicists, you've got practical physicists and astronomers and Einstein's kind of like, you know what? All right, fine. I guess the universe is expanding. You called me out. He called me uh, out. Yeah. And, and like later, because he could have been the guy to show that the universe was expanding but because he let his feelings and his politics get in the way, yep. the expansion rate of the universe is now known as the Hubble constant instead of the Einstein constant. Could have been yours, dude. Could have been yours. <laughs> the Hubble called it what it was. He called it. And mm -hmm. a, a year later, I'm going to, Lemaitre explored the logical consequences of this expanding universe and really boldly, just so bold, this guy proposed that the universe had to have originated from a finite point in time. Because it just makes sense. Because right? it makes sense. If the yeah. universe is expanding, it had to have been smaller in the past. Right. And if it was smaller in the past, you go back far and far and far enough, you get this infinitely dense, high compact matter, this primeval atom that the universe should have started from. Yep. Makes sense. And the only reason he was able to prove it true is because quantum theory was also exploding all over the place during this exact time. And so I just want to read you this quote from his paper, The Beginning of the World, from the point of view from quantum theory. He says that thermodynamical principles from the point of view of quantum theory may be stated as follows. The energy of constant total amount is distributed in discrete quanta, basically in discrete packets, like we know it, we can know its number, we can know its value. And the number of discrete quanta is ever increasing. If we go back in course of time, we might find fewer and fewer quanta till we find all of the energy of the universe is packed into a few or even a single unique quantum. That tiny, infinitely dense, infinitely hot point. And nobody liked it. But that went over like a lead balloon. Oh, yeah. 
Sir Fred Hoyle, an English astronomer uh, who formulated the theory of stellar nucleosynthesis, smart guy in his own right, was really still stuck on steady state hypothesis. Never mind this idea that the universe originated from an infinitely dense point. Like, how dare you? He thought, (laughs) this is so funny, he thought that this theory was so outrageously ridiculous that during an interview on the BBC radio program broadcast, like, they got the date and everything, March 28th, he poo-pooed the idea and called it the Big Bang Theory. (laughs) Get out of here. (laughs) I know! (laughs) That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) can we remember that every march 28th by the way (laughs) side note (laughs) everybody remember fred hoyle on march 28th because he hated the theory so much he called it the big bang theory t oh my word i never yep yep that's uh incredible i would never have known right that's where it came from originally nice yeah, I see Nanacy in the chat saying the singularity. Yes, this is a singularity. For those of you who don't know, a singularity is a moment in which all of physics breaks down. And so we have a really hard time understanding it. And so, yeah, Hoyle was like, this smells too much like religion. This is anti-science. How dare you? Like these guys. And he wasn't the only one. He was just the loudest one. Sure. You guys have to realize how impossible it was for these scientists to believe in this. Because to them, it wasn't, they didn't think it was provable, right? It felt too much like, well, if there was an infinitely dense point out there in the middle of nowhere, there had to have been a time before the laws of physics to create that thing. Which means there has to be an unmoved mover. Like, they couldn't handle that. No. No. That's way too much for them to take. Right. And they also needed infinite time. Because that would also suggest that time had a beginning. And you ever hear the clock in a box theory of creation? Mm -hmm. That with infinite time and infinite shakes, you could have a clock assemble itself and all the parts work and not to get into all of the fine tuning arguments, but infinite time is basically how scientists argued themselves out of the fine tuning argument. And Lemaitre's primeval Adam was starting to break that down. So somebody somewhere out there had to find evidence of the moment when all of creation came into being. And that person was Bob Dickie. Oh, I love it. Bob Dickey. Bob Dickey. Great Good name. old Bob. So during Good the early Bob. 1940s, uh, he and other researchers at uh, MIT played a key role in the development of microwave radar. He was very invested in microwave radiation techniques. Uh, he had become an integral component of developing modern radio telescopes like he did lots of important work and he was also deeply invested in looking into Einstein's concept of gravitation and so all of his background set basically set him up with this job like this was the perfect problem for him to solve and so him and several of his colleagues hypothesized that 
there should be some sort of background radiation left over from that moment. If we have all of this densely packed energy and it suddenly explodes out, right, and is going and going. Um, let me pull up an image to kind of help us think about it. Here we go. We've seen this image before, right? We have mm-hmm. our infinitely dense point and then it, boom, it explodes and then everything starts expanding and going outwards from that. And so all of that energy slowly over time dissipates, but it's not going to go away because that is an insane amount of energy. Right. So there should be some amount of radiation left over on the microwave scale. Right. There should well, be. Yeah, there should be. You would. Okay. Yes. I think I see where you're going. Keep going. Okay. And there was. Of course. Ah, they found it. And it's kind of funny because they actually weren't the ones who found it. Mm. It was actually found by accident in the 60s by um, these two lab techs who were working for Bell Laboratories. They were <laughs> Right? I love these stories. <laughs> it, it's great. I, yeah. I love these moments. And it's so funny, too, because they were experimenting with uh, the telescope radio that had been designed to capture radio waves reflected from communication balloons high in Mm. the atmosphere. And they kept running into trouble because there was all this radio interference and it didn't matter if they took their machine apart and put it back together. There was nothing they could do to get rid of this sound. It's like, you know, when you turn on your radio and it's like, yes, you can't get rid of it can't get rid of it (laughs) and so they were like what is going on and then they ran across dickie's hypothesis and they were like i think we might have found it (laughs) i think we found that thing you're looking for right and insane yeah doing something totally different not related And so they were awarded the Nobel Prize for finding the cosmic microwave background radiation that ultimately proved the Big Bang Theory. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) By accident. By accident. Jeez, O'Pete. That is, I don't know, it's all just mind-blowing. This is just amazing. I love how this is coming together. And so because of this, they were able to figure out that the universe is on the order of 13.8 billion years old. And that energy that had dispersed from billions and billions of degrees Kelvin is now only 2.7 degrees. So just this little leftover background noise from the moment of creation. And just to, you know, make things crazier, in the 1990s, NASA's COBE satellite detected this microwave background radiation with such extraordinary precision that they were able to see the explosion from the Big Bang was not just, like, perfectly uniform, but contained just enough, like, lumpiness, for lack of a better word, to show that there was so much matter packed into that infinitely dense point that it was enough to form all of the stars and the planets that we see in outer space. Get out of here. I know. Get out of here. 
And so remember that uh, red shifting we talked about with Hubble? And so in 1998, the Supernova Cosmology Project found that the velocity at which the distant galaxies were receding from the observer is actually increasing. So not only is the universe expanding, but it's getting faster. (laughs) It's speeding up. It's speeding up. Which obviously makes no sense at all because Newton's laws say, well, an object in motion stays in motion, an object at rest stays in rest. It doesn't magically gain energy unless acted upon by an outside force. Exactly. So. Wonder what that outside force is. Question is, right. It's the outside force. Oh. And so just like for my last image of the day, this is our current model of the accelerated expansion of the universe. And now we know that the Big Bang is the most common belief of the day. I mean, like we were just talking about, it's hard to imagine a theory before it. Right. And even at the time, scientists were like, no, this stinks too much of religion. This can't be it. Right. And yeah, can't touch that. They, this is the thing that frustrates me. As scientists always like to be, be like, well, there's no evidence of God. I don't know what you call that. Right. I don't know what you would, what do you want? Like, that's my question to them. Okay. Right. Then what do you, what is evidence of God to you? What do you, do you want him to like smack you in the face? probably (laughs) i know well and that's the thing is they wouldn't believe him if he did smack him in the face because he did he came to earth and smacked them all in the face and they still didn't believe it was him and they're still gonna find reasons not to believe so there if you choose to look at life that way then you're not gonna find god anywhere so right there's no helping you (laughs) there's no helping you and i know this was a long drawn out story way of saying like damn god's so freaking cool but like really though But it's awesome. And when you see it in this context and when you see it broken down, that's what I love about this. When you see it broken down this way, it you already know like God's so cool, but then you break it down and it's like, I didn't even comprehend how amazing it is. And now I know a little bit more. Get it a little bit more. I just Right? Yeah. It's like and the, again, this is why I love science, not because like the math is hard and I get to somehow get my jollies from feeling smart or whatever, because I actually don't, I feel stupid the more I learn, (laughs) but I just feel so so incredibly small and insignificant, but oh my gosh, look at the majesty and wonder of what God has created. It is so just big. Yeah. It's humbling and mind blowing and awe-inspiring all in one fell swoop. Like, right. Feel all the things. <laughs> and terrifying, too. Like, yeah. That, to me, that infinite space, infinite, even the infinite possibilities when you think, think about um, physics and the, um, what is the word I'm looking for here? Not, Not like the tangible part, but when you're, trying to put the pieces together and you're kind of I don't know anyway (laughs) sorry never mind the point is it is terrifying in that all of this is so massive yeah and you are so not (laughs) so not 
so much we don't know. So like just so incredibly much. I want to read you guys this guys this quote um, by Alan Sandage. He was the protege of Edwin Hubble, so basically his successor. And to his credit, he did all kinds of amazing work. Honestly, he could get an episode unto himself. Um, but I think this quote just really gets to the heart of it. To think that the universe only happened once, that makes it even more mysterious in a sense. What happened before the first millisecond is outside the realm of science, but it is no more mysterious than noting the tremendous complexity of the cosmic balance of the human body. You cut yourself, and why is it that the white corpuscles know exactly where to go to close the wound? That is a miracle, and I don't believe that is due to progressive selection of the fittest. It's just too fine a mechanism. I don't know what I'm saying now. I don't know what the next sentence is. I don't mean that this points to the existence of God, whatever that means. Newton's laws are God in a sense, but I find it also rational and amazingly beautiful and mysterious. You can see that he's getting close. I think at this point in the 70s, he kind of wants to. But even then, it's just this belief in God is just frowned upon in the scientific community and it had been working in this direction for a long time because scientists, for whatever reason, felt the need to chase the angels out of science. Right. And it's really depressing. And I think this is kind of what we were trying to get at when uh, Spencer had joined us and we were talking about science and magic. It's not that magic was hokey-dokey and whatever and that science just disproves it. It's that science reveals to us the wonder of the spiritual and of the cool things that God has made. It doesn't make us more important or powerful just to know how it works. And to be frank, we really don't know how the heck it works. Yeah. Breadcrumbs. You know? Yes. This is not the loaf. (laughs) We're just getting breadcrumbs and we think we've got it all figured out. Oh my gosh, isn't that the crux of humanity? We have the tiniest crumb and we're like, oh, I got it, man. Yeah, I figured this out. I got it. I don't need it. I don't need the rest. I know. You know nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Literally nothing. And I come up against that just like the more and more I dive into cosmology and just like science as a whole. And so despite working with Hubble, Alan Sandage, was really getting close up against the God problem. Uh, Stephen Meyer gave this interview. Um, I, you know who Stephen Meyer is? Yep. He wrote The God Hypothesis and Signature in the Cell. Love to talk about him sometime too because his yeah. movement from just like raw scientist to trying to bring God back to science is like amazing and a huge inspiration. Um, yeah. But he was at this conference in the 80s, and Alan Sandage was there. It's like, first of all, I can't even imagine being in the presence of such greatness, but like, whatever. (laughs) But they asked those who were attending to move to either side of the room to vote for a belief in God. Like, first of all, why are you doing this at a conference? But it was the 80s, whatever. To everybody's shock and perhaps horror of many scientists, Sandage sided with the folks who believed in God. Ooh. So he came around. Yeah, obviously. He's so close. You hear it. You hear yeah. it in what you just read. You can hear like the struggle in his soul just yeah. in that 
quote you gave us. It's all, it's right there. How could he not? He was right there working alongside Hubble. He saw the discoveries happen. Yeah. How could you not? Right. Right. How could you close off your heart so hard? Some people can. Some people can. Uh, we, I think we've talked about this before. I often think of, you know, in the Old Testament when God said he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Yes. I still struggle with that. I still don't really understand it. But I see how people harden their own hearts against Absolutely. what God has to show them. And I feel like in science, we've gotten to this point where so many scientists have just walled themselves off. And that's why science has really devolved into this really disgusting pursuit of money and grants and whatever. It's like that little sneaking grossness we saw in Einstein where he was fudging the data just so he didn't have to say that God was real. Except now we see that in every scientist. Yeah. Yeah. And like he was ashamed of it and he came around too. that people today don't care. No, it's all, it's encouraged. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's why I left big research. Exactly. Exactly. Integrity is, is no longer this. It's not the same if it even exists in these areas anymore. (laughs) It's sad. And I think one of the goals for our show is not only to share with you guys the beauty of God's creation, but to show that, an honest pursuit of science will re- naturally reveal God's wonder. Like they, these physicists weren't out trying to disprove physics, but right. that's what they ended up doing to that's show that did. there was a point in time in which all of the laws of physics break down. Yeah, absolutely. It also shows our faith needs to be, um, needs to have longevity to it. Yeah. Because there are definitely folks who lived through a time when these things were big and they didn't understand. At some point, you just believe because you believe. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you can't always explain it. But then to... And that's where the longevity comes in. It's like, I don't need anybody to prove it. But these things are proving more and more, at least making people question more and more. Like, oh, well, maybe at least there's intelligent design. I'm I'm still not going to say God, but at least there's intelligent design. And so even if in your lifetime you don't have the answers, you never know what will come from your pursuit of these things or the – I don't know. So – don't lose faith when we don't have the answers either. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, look yeah. how far we've come in just a few hundred years. And not everybody's going to live to see it all come to fruition. But at the same time, it's out there. God's showing himself. He is. You can see it. Yeah. Uh, it is a, what is it? It is a foolish generation who looks for signs and wonders. It is a stupid generation who ignores signs and wonders. Yes. God painted the skies with his majesty and glory and power. And how could you look at that and deny his existence? I just don't get it. Exactly. Exactly. I might not have all the, the equations or all of the answers that a scientist might want, you know, in these situations. Right. But I can look up and I can see these things. You and I can look t- together right. and be like, 
I see. <laughs> I see. That's the thing. It's like I don't think I gave a single equation tonight. We talked a couple of numbers, but you don't have to be no. in the meat of the math to no. appreciate how beautifully wondrous it all is. Yes. God's not gatekeeping. No. <laughs> here, here it is. <laughs> And don't let the scientists gatekeep you out either. That's what this show yeah. is for. We're breaking down the gate. That's right. We're kicking it in. Mm. Got our boots on. <laughs> kicking down the I, gate. I have my slippers on, but yeah. Fuzzy socks, but still, it, we're socks. still doing it. Our fuzzy <laughs> socks will break down the gates. That's I'm right. here for it. <laughs> so oh, that's really all comfort. I have for tonight. I know it's a short episode, but it's like, it's also deep and heavy yeah. and I just enjoyed researching it. It was fun. I hope you guys enjoyed it too. I did too. It was it was fun stories too. Yeah. All their attitudes. There's so much attitude. I liked all the attitude. <laughs> I'll just leave you guys with uh, one more quote from another uh, astronomer, Robert Jastro. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. And that's why we're here. That's it. I like it. So before we go and head over to the Rumble Only section and talk memes... Any thoughts, Elise? Meme it. Um, I like what Nanasi just said. If you ever get a chance to see the night sky without any light pollution, go for it. It's the most wonderful, breathtaking of sights. Absolutely. Yes. If you want to be reminded of how big your God is and how wonderful and, and mighty he is, highly recommend. 10 out of 10. <laughs> 10 out of 10 recommend. Yeah. I liked this. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, guys. I hope you all have a Merry Christmas. I hope that you all get a wonderful time with your family. And we will see you.